This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, but really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome to episode 324 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome back onto the show elite powerlifter and strength and conditioning coach Matt Wenning. Now, Matt was my guest on episode nine, so one of the earliest guests. So if you haven't heard that conversation, I highly recommend that you do. So in this conversation, we cover a host of topics from building a resilient population, and obviously this pandemic has really underlined that, through to creating resilience when it comes to the tactical athletes. So how to train so you have longevity into your career, and then many, many other topics in between. Before we get to this interview, as I say every single week, Please go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. The five-star ratings really do make us more visible to people that are looking for a project like this. And remember, this is a free library of content for you, the audience on planet Earth. So use it yourself, use it for your department, and then all I ask in return is that you help share, pay it forward. So the more men and women we can get these incredible stories to, the more lives we can change. So that being said, I introduce to you, Matt Wenning. Enjoy. Well, Matt, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming back on the Behind the Shield podcast. Our first conversation was back in late 2016, and that was episode nine. So firstly, thank you for coming on again. Yeah, not a problem. 
Brilliant. Well, I guess the, the first icebreaker is obviously an, an easy one at the moment. What have you seen through your own eyes as far as the pros and cons during this time of isolation? Well, I'll tell you, the people that aren't multifaceted in um, income revenue streams are really hurting right now. So like people that don't have, you know, let's say like they're personal trainers, but they don't have manuals or they don't have an online presence or, you know, different types of, um, you know, uh, services that they can um, that they can, you know, offer. It really is really hurting a lot of people, I think. I think uh, John Russell said something about this uh, maybe last week about how this is really going to clear out a lot of the fitness industry right now. Yeah. As far as a lot of the people that should not be in the fitness industry. Yeah, I think we're seeing that with a lot of a lot of industries. Full stop. Is I think the people that have seemingly always come from a good place are going to be left, and I think people that were in it for the wrong reasons, whatever industry they are in, are probably going to fall to the wayside after this. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, then what about, um, I, I think that I've seen you post, I have seen Tim Kennedy post, it's something that I've talked about a lot. What have been your observations as far as the correlation between overall wellness of our nation and the impact of this virus? Well, I think the sad thing is, is that the virus, the, the, our stance as a society around the world on the virus isn't to, you know, uh, um, protect the healthiest to protect the sick and the weak that aren't terrible. Um, I think it's a freak, but just based on the fact of what I've seen, most of the people that have had severe issues with the coronavirus are sick anyway. I'm not saying you have to pass away. All I'm saying is, is that shouldn't we be a little bit more concerned with our health versus trying to find a vaccine and trying to do all these other things. Let's just focus on making our body a bad host to the virus. And you don't hear anybody talking about that or saying anything about it, you know? And it's funny because as a government situation goes, you know, they're showing that, you know, highly fit, more muscle mass, more strength, more athleticism is a very good, you know, prediction of how bad the mortality is going to be with the COVID virus and we're, we're keeping the gyms closed the longest. I mean, to me, it just doesn't make any sense. But, you know, you can walk into your average grocery store and they're not limiting how many people that can be in there, um, you know. And it's just – it's odd to me because it almost seems like health is the way for this virus to not be bad for most people, but it's not something we're focusing on. Yeah. See, and that's what I'm seeing. And, and, and I'm also seeing a division. So you have the two extreme camps. You have the stay at home or you're a murderer camp. And then you have this is a government conspiracy, <laughs> you know, and, and there's all the people in the middle that are going, Hey, wait a second. What about us, us here? And, and I, I think that that's the problem is that when people then come out and say, Hey, this is also a wellness issue and, and the, the strength of your immune system is a big factor in surviving this epidemic. And the moment you seem to step up and say that, you get attacked from both sides. You know, a one saying that yeah. you're, you're validating this virus, the other saying, well, you're questioning isolation. And it's like, no, you know, the people that have come from the wellness space understand how you create resilience. And I think that by suppressing that conversation, you're basically devaluing all the people we do lose because you're saying you don't want to learn any lessons from this. You just want to wear masks and then go back to work. 
Yeah, it's rough because on one end of the token, you know, you can understand people not wanting to listen to the the uh, advice of the government. It's not like we haven't been lied to before. And on, on the other hand, you know, um, you don't want to take it not seriously. But I think a lot of this issue is the media. The media uses misinformation. They want to sell or have higher ratings. And then they push this, you know, urgency onto things that may or may not need it. And I think it becomes difficult because we don't know if what we're hearing is true and we don't know how serious to really take it. I mean, if I were to base it off my personal experience, um, out of all the firemen that I train, which is fairly high amount of guys, and they're around the general public all day, we have only had one case of COVID. One case out of 400 firemen. To me, it just seems like it's not that big of a deal. But I don't know because you don't know what to think. You don't know what to, you know, because the media is so messed up. And then you got doctors fighting over what's what's right and wrong. We don't know what the procedures are. And then it changes week to week. I think what it shows is that how much little how little we don't know as a society and how unstructured we really are when shit hits the fan. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's something I've seen because I've been very, very lucky. I have a international connection with firefighters and responders and doctors literally all over the globe and I, and so many of them say we're really not seeing much now don't get me wrong new york london they are seeing a lot these are very densely populated you know polluted cities um and you know there's there's uh-huh. obviously millions and millions of people and i'm not downplaying it at all but there it you you have to question when 90% of the country is not seeing very much. And it's not, again, poo-pooing isolation. But we do have now the luxury of taking a step back and saying, while we're waiting, while we're bracing for potentially something worse, let's discuss physical health. Let's discuss the cleanliness of our food. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. But, you know, the nutritionists and the wellness people are being almost pushed away you know, and you're either just a dirty, you know, a dirty guy that doesn't care or a dirty person that doesn't care or you're a super freaky hypochondriac. And there's no in the middle where people are using reason and saying, well, you know, let's let's eat healthier and let's do this. I mean, what's funny is none of our fast food restaurants are out over here are closed, you know, and if you look at like the basic foods in the grocery stores, the, the healthy foods, they're all there and everybody's fighting over the junk food. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, man. It's really, really shows you how poor of choices we make as a society and how we never take the things that we can control seriously. And we take all the things that we cannot control seriously. It's it totally blows my mind. Yeah. Well, another thing I've been talking about as well, which is totally related to this, is that the men and women that we rely on, the doctors, the nurses, the you know, the firefighters, the paramedics, police officers, are some of the ones that we work, you know, incredibly long hours. And so, you know, another thing that I want to highlight while we're in this is that these people now that you you need, you're all you're all staying at home and you need these men and women to be out there, are the ones who yeah. I think are less resilient because of the way they've been worked. Well, not only that, and then they have, you know, most medical facilities and even still today Fire departments, police departments, no matter how many facilities I go to and show them how much money I can save them and how much healthier I can make their guys, we still have a debate over where whether or not 
fire and police and military should have strength coaches and should have wellness programs. And I'm just like, oh, my God, we're we're like, you know, so resilient or reliant on these people for these jobs. And we don't even care if they're we think that average health is going to, you know, just average health procedure is going to be good enough. And we're, in reality, it's not. These guys need to be stronger, need to be fitter. They need to eat cleaner than the average person because they're surrounded by more junk and germs and viruses than any people are in any given day, especially now with this stuff going on. And, you know, the thing of place cuts is the health and wellness of the of the employees, which is just crazy. Yeah. Now, I know you've worked with, you know, some high level uh, tactical athletes in the military space as well. I have, you know, have obviously had a lot of them on the show. What have you seen the difference between the the elite operators and, and the kind of environment, tr- fitness and nutrition and, and rest and recovery compared to some of the firefighters that you train? Uh, well, it's, it's night and day, but the reason is because of what we select as a as a norm. So the people in special ops units know and realize that if they don't maintain an elite level of fitness, that they just don't have that job anymore. I mean, period, end of story. It doesn't matter how good of a guy you are. If you can't pass their physical tests of whatever they deem to be appropriate, then you don't you don't allow it. But because in the fire services and the police departments, it's a civil service type job and they're protected by their own unions, sometimes to a fault. That a lot of times, you know, they they don't have to take their wellness seriously, even though they should, and it becomes a huge problem. So, what you find is that for average people, and you know, or uh, people that decide that they want to be firefighters or anything like, or police fighter, I mean, I have the utmost respect for them. But the problem is, is that it relies back on you to be in great shape because you can't depend on your department to have rigorous enough tests in order to force you to be in good shape because we have created this crazy issue of making, you know, the physical tests way too easy to pass. I mean, some of the tests that we have at the departments that I have, I don't necessarily agree with because you could pass them and never have to train. And to me, that just means nothing. Um, But in the special operations units, their tests are insane and they have to pass them and they know they have to pass them or they get automatically booted out no second chances, no ifs, ands, or buts. So those guys have a fire under their rear end that's completely different because they know they're on the chopping block at all times. Um, you know, and that's that's one of the big differences. But I think that as the insurance costs go up and as um, people get heavier around the world, that slowly but surely fire departments and police departments will hopefully have to get in better shape in order to keep their job, in order for them to be able to to um, supply the, the the taxpayer and all them a what I consider a good service, which meaning that, you know, you show up to a fire and you're super athletic and you can you can do your part and your share of the job and you're trained and, you know, to be able to handle that type of stress physically and mentally. Um, but, you know, it's a numbers game, too. So the other big problem you have you know, with a special operations unit I worked at um, 3rd Battalion Rangers, they only had 700 guys. You know, I mean, that's a lot of dudes for a special operations unit. But, you know, that's a small city department for a fire, for firefighters. So my point is, is that you still have to fill the seats in the fires and in the in the fire trucks and the medics and all that. So it becomes a numbers game, too. You know, 
you can't run on a fire with two elite guys. You have to have, you know, six, 10, 12, 20 guys. So the problem becomes numbers, you know, whereas the special operations units, they're getting hundreds, if not thousands of people coming into selection, you know, every six months to a year that they can select the 10 or 15 or 20 that are bouncing in and out here and there. So, you know, when you have a lower numbers, you can be more elite um, as far as a group. But because the fire departments are so big as far as like, you know, in Columbus, I think the, the Columbus Fire Department is like 1,800 firemen. So how do you make 1,800 people elite? That would be the ultimate question. Because if you make the test too crazy and too hard, then that nobody can pass. You really don't have a fire department. So the numbers game becomes a huge issue as well. Yeah, and I think that's that's the the happy medium. Obviously, the 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 elite tactical athletes that even with them, then within them, you're going to have the fittest and the least fit. But they are, you know, just incredible, incredible athletes. But I think that, you know, you're going to have some in police and fire that, that easily could be in those groups, and then some that are a little bit further down. But by pushing that bar up, you know, you're you're creating that that middle ground. And and what I'm curious, I, I want to say I asked you this in the first one, but you you mentioned the the you know, the cost. I I see the way that we do it in in the fire service at the moment very short sighted. I see a lot of people that want to make themselves look good in a budget year, so they're cutting, they're getting rid of wellness programs. The unions are opposing, like you said, which I think is disgusting. Um, but from an you know when you look at long term, the cost of a back injury of you know someone going on disability because of high blood pressure, um, you know mistakes that sure. we make because we're sleep deprived. What are you, what are the kind of just the, 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 the shapes of the numbers that you bring to these departments to show them that down the road, they're actually going to save a huge amount of money by implementing wellness uh, initiatives? Sure. Well, so when I first started at Washington, which keep in mind, I've been at that department for 13, nearly 14 years now. So as far as holding a job in one spot in the tactical community, I might have the record. But um, when I started there, they were spending $550,000 on insurance premiums for a 130-person department guy. Okay, so they were spending $550,000 a year for 130 people in their department. Fast forward to five years later, because we have to get average guys strong slowly, right? You can't take um, a really weak person and make them very strong quickly unless you're willing to raise injury rates. So you have to think about you have to do stuff in a very long time span in order for everything to grow slowly so you don't increase injuries. So that way everybody's on the same page because you can have the best program in the world. But if it's implemented too quickly, you're just going to raise injury rates. So that was something I had to learn, not the hard way, but I had, luckily I had enough smarts to think about that retrospectively back in 07. So fast forward to 2012, we take a new measure of the insurance data. <clears throat> they were down to half, 250,000. So now for them paying me 60,000 a year, they're saving 250,000. Fast forward to 2017, we are saving them $400,000 a year. Now these are massive numbers, but the reason that I came into that job and knew that their main goal was not performance. It was injury rates. And I knew that if I raised the performance in the right sectors that I could reduce injuries, therefore, I was going to really be able to set my way in stone. 
So the point being is we were able to cut down their spending by at minimum 70% of what their insurance costs were. So now we're at a point where their savings is far outweighing their expenditure. Now, what we did was um, that included, so now they've had all the equipment bought that I've wanted. You know, we, we I, I train fairly specialized, so there are specialized equipment bought into this. But by the time the first three years were over, they have been done paying all the equipment costs. And now they were only paying me my service fee. So by the end of 2012, they had completely bought all the equipment they needed to do everything right. And that's when we really started to see the savings really drop. So you have to have the right equipment. You have to put some money in up front. But in a 10-year span, which is what every fire chief and every, you know, mayor and every person that's in charge making these kind of decisions need to be looking at things in a 10-year or one-decade window. And that's where you really see the progress and change. You know, um, you can't get a lot done safely in 12 weeks, 24 weeks. You have to have a longer thought process when doing this. So when I go interview for these new departments, for instance, I'm starting with the south side of Columbus as soon as this COVID stuff cleans out. I told him, I said, if you guys don't want me for at least five to seven years and you don't want to buy what I need to make these guys better up front, then I'm not your guy. You know, and that's the other problem that we've had as a tactical strength coach comes in. They don't know what their boundaries are or what they actually need to be doing in order to do this. And then they don't have boundaries or limitations. And then what ends up happening is they go in and sell them something that's impossible, right? Oh, I can turn all this around in 12 or 20 weeks. And in reality, you can't. You have to do it slow. But if you know that up front and you're up front with the fire chiefs and the trustees and you're telling them, look, this is a long-term plan. This is what I know I can save you if we take this the long route. Are you guys in or out? And once they have that up front, then you're doing a good job. But the the problem is, is most of us in a tactical service are so hyped to get the job or provide the service that we're not giving ourselves an ample timeline in order for us to see the right results with the lowering of injuries and the increase of performance. Because at the end of the day, a higher level of performance means nothing if you can't sustain it. Yeah, exactly. And as we were talking right before we started recording, I mean, the, the career of a firefighter is a marathon, but obviously there are there are sprints sprinkled all through that. So we have to be a very durable athlete mentally and physically. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And anything like that is going to take time and take patience and take the right equipment. So you have to have all that stuff in play in order to see the long-term results. The nice thing is 2017, 2018, 2019, and obviously we don't have 2020 data yet, all the insurance data has stayed that low. So we went from 550000 to 120000 is what we spend in insurance now. That put them back into group insurance costs, saving the department I think we added it up in 2018. We have saved the department like three and a half million dollars. Amazing, and even with the with the sleep, that's, that's after costs. Yeah, after costs. Yeah, yeah, and I, mean, I try and talk about this. I don't know what what's the work week for the the men and women that you work with. Is it a, a 42 hour week or higher? They work they work a f- um, 24 on and three off. Three okay, so yeah, so that that so I think is a gold standard. Yeah, they get they get 24 on and then two then then 48 off. It's it runs like that. Yeah, so they work every third day and then some of the city guys get what they call a Kelly day, once a month where they get almost an entire week off um, every I think every month. So I'm not exactly sure how that works because I've only worked with township guys that work 48 on or 24 on 48 off, 
and then they just trade with each other if they want longer time off. But um, there are places that are more like city places tend to be um, like city of Columbus fire departments. They get extra days off as well, but they actually make less. So it's kind of like all evens out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Because the one thing that I'm I'm trying to to kind of be a part of the push is the Northeast work 42 hours a week, which if you if you do it to 24 hour shift works out to be 2472. So that's a 42 hour, you know, hours a week where I see a lot of the problems is when it becomes 2448 or 4896 or, you know, you can chop it up and stir it around as much as you want. But that's a 56 hour work week, you know, so now you're taking away a lot of that rest and recovery. So, for example, Matt Wenning comes in and puts in a great program and yet you know, we don't have ample rest to recover to be that elite tactical athlete the next shift. Well, that's right and wrong, and I'll tell you why. One, just because a guy, a fire guy's on duty doesn't necessarily mean he's working. So the problem is he might be at the fire service, but they're not running that entire time. You know, I would say that giving them a lot of room, that they're only busy maybe 50% of the time where I see people mess up in the fire service. And this is just my, my observation, you know, everybody can do what they want to do. I don't care if people like working other jobs and stuff like that. It's not my place. But if I was to be the highest level fire department person that I could possibly be, then that 48 hours that I have off after I worked a 24 hour shift needs to be exercise, proper recovery and proper sleep. Obviously you're not in control of that, that 24 hours. But what you find is a lot of guys, they may not have a lot of runs in that 24-hour shift, but then the next two days they're spent doing like excruciating physical labor like drywalling and cement work and construction. And then they come into work and they're already still tired from what they did on their off days where they're supposed to be recovering. That's a hard, that's a big issue. And, you know, I get a lot of flack for it because I'll, I'll say it a lot. But like, you know, it's like me right now. I did a really nasty back workout this morning. And, um, I'm not going to go out and work on my lawn today because my body needs to recover. Uh, but you find that normal people don't have that mindset of recovery. So what they do is when they have time off, they run themselves into the ground with other activities. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's no recovery time. They're not recovering at work. They're not recovering on days off. It's just a slight, it's just a snowball effect shit show down a mountain. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I'm, from my perspective, it's it's a double-edged sword. Like there's definitely, like I said, the Northeast I think is great. I think 2472 is the gold standard and that's what we should be doing. And then there's the ownership of the individual. And and I, I know people that come off from the fire service and then go work a night shift in the hospital. That's insanity. You know, yeah. that's when you should be sleeping. But Exactly. So it's if like, we can fix what both. What are you doing? Yeah. So if we can fix both of those, we're really going to create an environment for these men and women to thrive. What I would say... If I could change everything, which I'll never be able to do, <laughs> never but say never. What I would do is I would pay, I would pay fire department guys more, more money, and then I would regulate how much they can make on other jobs or the hours that they can work on their days off, so that they force recovery. I mean, it sounds crazy, but I think some people you just have to have guidelines. And for a lot of people that I see that are constantly beat up on the job or don't have the energy, I mean. You know, all we would have to do is run on a couple of really hard fires, you know, every, you know, one fire every time they work a 24 hour shift and they wouldn't be able to do those other jobs. But the problem is, is that a lot of times when the guys go into the fire department, they're not doing runs. They're not that busy. And then what ends up happening is that they use the time that they're at the firehouse for recovery. 
which is crazy. But, you know, I get it. But the point is, is like the other days off is really what's excruciating. You know, you're hanging drywall 10 hours a day or you remodeled your whole house. And, you know, some of those things you just have to do because, you know, people have families and things like that. I get it. But sometimes we have to live within our means. You know, I mean, I want to have a $10 million house, but I don't have the money for it. So I have to live where I can live. So the point is, is, you know, we get we get to and it's not just tactical. It's everybody. But we get so enslaved to the things and material things that we want that we end up overworking ourselves and then we don't recover. You know, I mean, it's awesome to have a brand new truck or a brand new big house. But, you know, if you can't afford that and you're living above your means, then it's going to start making you want to do things outside of what you're actually paid to do, which is to be a tactical fire service or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, that's a, a national problem at the moment is people trade their health for wealth. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then at the end they have neither. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned about, um, you know, standards. I just want to get back to, to something a moment. We, when we talked, I don't think this was in place yet, but the army recently redid their, their entrance test or their national test. Um, and, uh, you know, put a lot more functional movements into it. Um, what's your perception of that? And have you gotten a, a national test, excuse me, an annual test in the departments that you work in? Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I'm slowly trying to work towards. It's, it seems like um, even at the departments that I'm pretty tight with, I'm still considered kind of an outlier. I mean, I show them I can save them money and I show them the type of equipment to get, but they really don't have my they don't ask for my advice on the testing protocols. And they're so afraid of being sued or legally reprimanded for putting in stuff in the test that, quote unquote, isn't fair, that I don't end up really helping them choose what their physical tests are, um, which is a shame, because I think that if I could recruit and do the types of movements that I want to do, the, the problem is, is that once a guy is hired full time, they don't want to be they don't want to be singled out that they're not doing their job. You know, so if you make a physical test too difficult, then you end up being an asshole. You know what I mean? So all I can do is control what I do in the weight room and then reduce the injuries. But I would say that functionally, you know, we, we drag a dummy. You have to drag a dummy 100 feet. That's probably the hardest thing that they do. But the dummy only weighs like 170 pounds. Well, shit. I mean, if you go walk into a normal grocery store around here, there's going to be at least 20 people in that grocery store that outweigh that by a hundred. Yes. Right. Or, or 40 kilos or whatever. But the point is, is like we are testing with stuff that's not real world usable. And that's what's scary. But the problem is, is that they have to use tests that are considered, you know, um, I don't know what you call it, legal by the state. So if I come out with a test and it's not, you know, sanctioned by the Ohio government or whatever, or the Ohio Fire Department, that they can sue that they didn't pass that test because it was unfair. So it's really weird type of um, hoops that we have to jump through. And all those rules were initially probably set to protect people's jobs from getting fired for unfit reasons. But I found that it slowly starts to really just protect the shitbags. Yeah. And I think it, it creates an, an environment for ill health, which then – you know, is in improving the chances of dying early, either while still on duty or soon after retirement. And that's the thing is like, really, if you want to fix retirement, you need to be as strong as you can when you're younger so that you can wean off of that strength as you get older. Obviously, you're not going to be, if you train hard, 
You're not going to be as strong as you were at 30 at 55. But if you're really strong at 30, you're going to be way stronger than everybody else at 55 and still way more than competent enough to do your job. But the problem is we don't think about that, you know. And then if you want to fix retirement, you need to be strong so your bones, ligaments, and tendons are beefy. And then you need to be eating clean based off of your blood work so that your body's not aging from the inside. You know, a lot of times, especially in the fire service, they get, you know, the, the job hazard gets the blame for being the unhealthy corporate of having a bad retirement or or a untimely death. But in reality, it's probably um, the the daily toxins and horrible food choices and lack of recovery that has caused the aging process to expand and grow so much faster because the problem is is that that's their culture you know their culture is i want to be unhealthy i want to sit around and i want to eat shit all day and then the problem is then they want to fix it by the time they're getting ready to retire and it's too late um and, and it's not that the it's not that the education's not there it's just that people don't want to listen you know it's like you can bring in people all day and i can get most of my fire guys to train pretty hard but man you start talking diet and eating cleaner, they scatter like cockroaches. <laughs> yeah, what you know what I mean. I do, and you know, it's it's been fascinating going down this road because, again, you know, double-edged sword. There are definitely physiological changes that happen through sleep deprivation. You know, hormonal changes, testosterone drops, all these things, and and it definitely contributes to weight gain and and you know, lack of motivation. But there are a lot of men and women that, despite that still are able to keep themselves in shape. So again, it's it's a, a double-edged sword that, we, you know, if we can create an environment to thrive, awesome. And that's one of my long-term goals. But in the meantime, you know, this is a group of people that sit around a dinner table. They cook together. They're unique in America, you know. So if you just learn a few recipes and understand the basics of of nutrition, like what clean food looks like versus what unclean food looks like, that in itself is going to set you head and shoulders above the average person. Sure. I mean, and you got, and the thing of it is you got to want to do it. That's the other problem is that, you know, you bring in a 25 year old kid that has no college education, no background in nutrition, you know, no higher level of, you know, um, higher learning. And then they've probably eaten either middle or slightly below middle class their whole life, a lot of them just don't know what eat cleaning, eating clean is, and they don't want anything to do with it. They don't want that type of food. They don't look at that type of food as a source of, you know, um, any of that stuff. I mean, the problem is, is that as a culture across the world, there are still very few societies that learn to just eat for energy versus eating for pleasure. You know, we were all taught you eat what tastes good. You eat what, in reality, in the human body, you know, 2,000 years ago, we ate what we could find, which was usually an animal or a nut because everything else was going to go raw or bad really fast. I mean, you know, the, the the super treat 2,000 years ago, I'm sure, was fruit because you'd find it and it'd be very scarce and it would be very every once in a while because the other animals get to it before you did. You know, so we were designed to eat meat, you know, drink water and not have a lot of sugar. So basically proteins and fats and not a lot of sugar. But the problem is we didn't grow up that way, especially this generation. Anybody that is my age or younger, which is getting to be more and more people by the year, but at 40 years old, you know, we grew up on McDonald's. We grew up on Pepsi. We grew up on Mountain Dew. Like, so you take a kid that that's all they've ever eaten and 
that you try to change that, you're, you're talking about pulling teeth. Yeah, and I think this is the perfect time for people. To, I mean, I'm, I'm loving seeing the posts. Like, I actually planted, you know, um, some herbs on my on my porch. You know, we, we bought some chickens for up. You know, the people are finally starting to understand it. You lock them in where they can't get to, you know, many fast food restaurants, even if they're open. And, and I think people yeah. are realizing, like, it really is that simple. And I was talking to someone the other day. Like, the reason why I think there's so much confusion is because when you and I were younger and we grew up, you know, instead of basic movements, and now a gym was full of these crazy-looking machines, you know, you had to take a host of supplements. And the reality is, just as you just said, the basics of fitness, the basics of nutrition are extremely simple, but you can't sell a 12-DVD set describing it unless you make it complicated. So getting people back to the fundamentals of eating, um, I think is so important. Yeah, I think I think if I were to give your listeners or anybody out there some key tips is do not sit down and have a meal if it doesn't have at least 40 grams of protein in it. I don't care if you're male or female. And the reason that I say that is because your food selections, when you have to fit in 40 grams of protein, start to become limited, right? You can't have 40 grams of protein in potato chips. You can't have 40 grams of protein in pretzels and popcorn. You can't have, you know, 40 grams of protein in a lot of foods that are available now. So what I sit down and do is if it doesn't have 40 to 50 grams of protein in it, I don't eat it. And then what I find is that my food selection becomes very, very healthy for me, both in my endeavors as a strength, um, strength athlete and in my blood work. So I think that's probably one of the biggest tips I can give people that need something really simple to follow. Look on the labels or find what it is and say, if this doesn't have 40 grams of protein in it, I can't eat it. Now, I saw you post um, about the vertical diet the other day. I, was, I got to train with Stan Efferding when he came to Florida for the World's Strongest Man with Thor the end of last oh, year. Nice. And I, I mean, when I say train with him, he put on 50 plates and I had, you know, like the... The training bar, <laughs> but, but I was next to he's him. He's an animal, man. He's like 50, he's fifty-two years old and can still smoke the shit out about anybody alive. Yes, yeah, and then I was included in that list. <laughs> but um, you know, I think I, the only two things I can still even beat him on, and I'm only forty. I think the only two things I can still I can beat him on the bench press because he has a torn shoulder, and I could probably beat him on a max effort squat. But I'll bet you he could still out pull me right now. Yeah, he's and he's so freaking humble as well. But but I love he came on the show and I and I love his his uh, his take on on nutrition as well. So is is the vertical diet something that you've kind of um, aligned with as well? Yeah, yeah, I've, I adapted it about I, I want to say it's almost three years now. Um, so yeah, seventeen. Um, I started to adapt it the last probably the last year of my professional lifting career. And that was when I was the strongest and the most solid I'd ever been. I was 292 pounds, and I think I was sitting at maybe 15% body fat um, at my last comp. And bench 611, squatted the world record 865, and then totaled uh, 2205, which was the second highest of all time. And if I'd have done that a month and a half earlier, it would have been the all-time world record raw. So, yeah, I mean, I, I learned over time – uh, how to eat cleaner. But yeah, the vertical diet, in my opinion, is not only good for, for what it says as far as food choices, but it's because of its absorption properties. 
you know, the food that's on that vertical diet is heavily absorbable. And that's what Stan probably told you was it's not what you eat, it's what you absorb. And if you're eating a bunch of stupid shit that your body can't absorb, you're not doing your body any justice. You're just creating inflammation, indigestion. You're not going to create any progress. So you have to have foods that work well with the body and you have to have foods that feed the type of endocrine and body system that you want to, you know, nourish. I mean, so in my opinion, there's no other other diet that has put out that much one performance and two in aesthetics and three in blood work. I mean, you know, you got half Thor's world records. I mean, and I know what half Thor eats because when he comes to town, I go do the grocery shopping. So, um, you know, it's pretty interesting to watch it work for a world strongest man, an IFBB pro bodybuilder and just average people. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, it is. I mean, obviously Stan, you know, he's so well read as well. He's got the science behind it. He walks the walk. He's, he's got all these elite athletes that have followed it and, you know, live by it. Um, and I think, you know, if someone's looking to kind of jumpstart their diet, that's a great template to go and, and research. Oh, by far, by, by far. There's probably nothing that's that simple that's out right now, I would say. Yeah. Now, now what have you observed? Because I, I like to ask the strong men and, you know, powerlifting uh, men and women, what have you observed as far as wellness versus performance? Because I know, especially in the strongman world, you know, I grew up with Jeff Capes and that kind of era watching them as a little boy. And all our strong men were also fat men, <laughs> you know, so, but now you watch Thor and, you know, and um, some of these other athletes and it's different. So have you seen the same in the powerlifting world where there's a realization that you can still be incredibly strong, but obviously somewhat leaner as well? It's a weight class thing. I mean, strong man's easier to kind of see because there's no weight class. So, you know, I would say the first person to come in super ripped as far as a strong man goes would be Pujanowski. But before that would have been Bill Kazmaier, um, you know, but in powerlifting, if you look at it, you got guys like Larry Wheels that could go bodybuilding or powerlifting. You got guys like Eric Lillibridge that was thick, but probably could have done bodybuilding as well as powerlifting as well. So you're starting to see that transition. But I think that that stuff's kind of been around a long time, because if you look at the old days back in the 70s. You had guys like Vincenello, which were all-time record holders in the deadlift and totals, and also had done bodybuilding shows. Same thing with Ernie France. Um, I, I'd have to think about it for a minute on the old guys, but there's a lot of dudes that were physically and aesthetically pleasing and also insanely strong. So I think that I would say every generation has the perfect mesh of there's a person that has strength and look. Um, but yeah, you look at like Larry, guys like Larry Wheels and stuff that are just so jacked and so lean, but they're just so ungodly strong too that, you know, I know Larry eats a lot like what Stan tells him to eat and stuff like that too. So um, I think it does come down to performance. Eventually, you know, like any sport, uh, body fat only gets you so far. Body fat doesn't move weight. So the more muscle you can have and the less body fat you can have, the theoretically, the better Wilk score you're going to have. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Now, speaking of Thor a second, what are your uh, thoughts on the, the the boxing match with Eddie Hall? <laughs> I don't know, man. It's, <laughs> here's, I'll tell you what. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll say it like two different ways. I think it's fucking cool because you got to look at Eddie Hall and Thor. They're going to they're gonna have a chance to both each make millions of dollars off of this. Yes. Okay, so that's the number one thing we have to consider is like these guys need to get paid while they're still in their prime 
because strongman and athletics of this caliber and magnitude, you cannot sustain this level of size and strength forever. So you're on a time clock. So I get, you know, I would say, I would say that Eddie Hall's more on the time clock than Thor. Um, if I had to guess though, I would say that they're good friends and that this rivalry is just marketing. I agree. Um, I've seen them, I've seen them side by side by each other and they're, they talk shit like everybody does, but they're not what they seem they are. You know, they don't have a vendetta against each other. I think they're both, you know, but but Eddie Hall's got to stay in the he's got to stay in the limelight because you got to remember he's retired. So the thing of it is, is and as you know, that I would have been a forgotten lifter in 2017. That was almost four years ago now. If I wasn't an exceptional strength coach that had a lot of other entities, you got to remember that a lot of these other guys don't have anything else to sell. So when their physicality has gone, they're gone. And that's sad, but it's sometimes the truth. The point is, is that, you know, as, if anybody thinks of it in that perspective, I think they'll understand why they're doing this. Um, they have a chance at both to be very big and very strong to make a lot of money really quick. But I would say that the rivalry is probably a marketing tool. Yeah, uh, it screams McGregor Mayweather to me. Yeah, exactly. It's just a moneymaker. Yeah, but it'll be interesting to watch. But what do you think of Thor's uh, record-breaking pull? Oh, I think it's awesome. You know, I mean, he's getting shit for it, and I get it. But the thing of it is, is then this particular culture or time frame that we're in right now with the coronavirus and us being quarantined and not being able to travel very well, what was he supposed to do? Again, I don't think anybody's talking about timelines. You know, Thor was big as shit at the Arnold and I think he wanted to maintain that weight for another couple months before he shed it off. See, the reason Thor stays pretty healthy is because he doesn't stay 450 pounds all year round. But he knew at the Arnold that he was close to pulling it. But the thing of it is, it was tact it was tactical. So what he did was is he knew that he won all the prize money he could win at the Arnold. So if he stretched it another month or two to pull it at a different location, then he was going to make double the prize money. You guys got to remember, like, the shelf life on these dudes are short. I mean, Thor's 31 now. He's only going to be that strong if he's lucky another five years that he's going to have to call it quits or start paying the piper. I mean, as we've all seen, look at Brian Shaw. He's not nearly what he was two, three years ago, and he's only 39. So I think that usually the peak of most people's maximal strength is going to be, especially if they've been training hard their whole life, is going to be somewhere around 35. And then after that point, only the smart survive. And even if you're lucky to stay away from injury. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. And I think I, I still, as a complete layman, like I'm not, you know, well-versed in, in powerlifting as far as rules and regs and everything. But to me, if you've got people who are trusted that are officiating a pull, I don't see why that would invalidate it. Here's my thing. I am just happy that he pulled it and it looked clean. I don't, to me, he didn't hitch it. He didn't, he didn't rebend his knees. It was a smooth powerlifting level pull, obviously with straps. But my point is, is that to me, it, it didn't matter to me if it was in, you know, judged in a, a legal competition or not. When I saw it on the video, it looked good. And that's what I wanted it to be. So to me, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? He's got the record. He pulled it. He pulled it with impeccable form and not hitching. So for a power lifter, see, we're not allowed to do any of that crazy shit. 
We're not allowed to rebend the knee. We're not allowed to fucking hitch it. We're not allowed to do all this crazy shit that they get by with in strongman. So when he pulled it clean, that's all I cared about. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was amazing to watch. Like I said, from a guy that would struggle with the bar. <laughs> um, you pull- you're pulling a world record and you still made it look like you had some in the tank. Oh, absolutely. But like you could have gone up, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not well-versed, like I said, but it looked like he had another 20K in them. Yeah, and that's the key, though. See, you, people don't realize, but you remember the old Russian lifter, Vasily Alexiev. Um, he broke 70 world records in the clean and jerk. He was named Athlete of the Year as an Olympic weightlifter in 1975 by Sports Illustrated. The baddest Russian as far as the amount of world records that ever lived. He broke his world records by one kilo every time he did it, or even sometimes a half a kilo. So the point is, is he played the game same way that Thor's going to play it. I guarantee you he's going to try to break that Delif record two or three more times because look at the prize money. Now, if he goes berserk and throws another 20 keys on it and pulls it, but that's all he ever has left, he can't make more money. If he pulls it and just breaks it by a little and then raises the bar – up to that 20 kilos over the next two to three years, he's going to walk away with a quarter million more dollars in prize money. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like and you that's, said, that's the end of the game. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, I want to, I want to transition to a completely different area, but I think the most admirable athletes that you ever worked with, and that's the, the children. I know you obviously in, in your, your last episode talked about your injuries as a little boy, but I, I love seeing the posts of, of these young, you know, um, adaptive athletes that you're working with. So tell me about them. Well, so we train a handful of special needs kids at the gym. Um, the, the most famous, the one I post on the most is, is Trey and Trey, um, for a lot of people don't know this, but he was going to be born with spina bifida. So he was C-sectioned out. They fixed his back. They put him back in his mom and then he was born regular style with a brain tumor. Okay, so talk about the worst deck of cards you could possibly have. So he comes to me at four years old. He can't really walk without somebody holding his hand, and he's got to have braces on his legs or he'll buckle. Over the next two and a half years, we got him out of braces. We got him running. We got him jumping. We got him moving. You know, I mean, you could tell he still has something going on with him, but at least he can slightly play like a normal kid, and that was my goal. And it it really hit me hard and at home because the kids that I train, I can I can relate to Trey because when I was hit by the car, when I was his age about now, six years old, um, you know, I was bedridden for an entire year up to my hips. I couldn't couldn't move. I had to be wheelchaired. Um, so I know what it's like to come back out of that. So I'm hoping that I can, you know, my goal is to make Trey above average. But if I can make him exceptional, then that's that's my goal. But to show people that everybody around that no matter what your limitations are, somebody has always went further than you with more adversity. And that's what I think we have to remember. It's like, yeah, there's only going to be a handful of people that ever break world records. And yeah, there's ever only going to be a handful of people that ever get on magazines for being physically prominent. But did you ever think about the kid that just wants to be, that just has to work so hard to be average? I mean, what does that feel like, you know? And I think maybe I have the most connection to that based off the fact that I get hit by a car and I was in a wheelchair for a year. But, you know, um, to me, it's probably one of the most fulfilling things I do. I mean, let's be honest. If somebody wants to train hard and fairly smart, you can make people strong. If you want to 
get people to eat cleaner. All they have to do is have a little bit of integrity and a little bit of, you know, self-discipline. But you have to really know your shit to take a kid that can't walk and make him be as normal as possible um, when all the cards are stacked against you, both in brain tumors and fusions, you know? Yeah. Well, and again, going back to the, let's say the firefighters, let's just pick on them for a moment. The one that's overweight, the one that thinks exercise is too hard, the one that doesn't want to eat cleaner food. Look at Trey. Look at this kid. And like yeah. you said, what he was given when he basically entered the world. And I can't imagine the courage and the heart that must be in that young man. And then to go to someone who's just basically making excuses when they were born with a completely healthy body before they fucked it up. You know, so I, I Dude, think this is my this is my fucking problem every week. And that's why. Sometimes when I go in and work with these guys, they can't understand why I'm in such a shitty fucking mood. And I'm like, I just worked with a kid that was never going to walk correctly again. And he brought 200% more effort than you did today. And you wonder why I'm pissed off. You know, like I think the problem with average people is average people can't get out of their own fucking way. They can't realize that they're their problem and that they need to fix their problem. And they live life that way. You know, it's, it's crazy. I mean, you know, I try not to get on tangents on this stuff, but it's just like, holy shit. Like when you've worked your way out of being in the gutter to being something exceptional, you don't, you don't, you don't relate well to people that don't want to try their damnedest when they have nothing holding them back. Yeah. I just watched a a documentary called Skid Row Marathon and it's actually a criminal um, judge, criminal justice in, um, Los Angeles, and he, long story short, started a running club for some of the addicts, homeless, you know, some of the repeat offenders, and had amazing results. They ended up doing you know, a marathon in, in Italy, in Rome, you know, together. And that's just it. When, I mean, I, this podcast is over 300 episodes now, and probably 25% are some of the most powerful stories of human resilience you've ever heard. So you don't have to go very far to recalibrate you know, your, your gratitude level and then wake up the next day and, and actually say thank you to the world for the amazing gift that you've been given, which is probably a healthy body and then go out there and do something about it. Man, I know it's crazy. It's crazy because I've seen potential in people that had no potential and seen how far they could go with just having a fucking sack and like having some drive and then average people that could be even above and beyond anything they pot imaginable and they just don't want to put the work in. And it's not just fire departments. It's not just tactical. It's our entire society, you know, and I, I don't know what it's like to have that issue. I think because to me, I feel like every day that I've lived my adult life, I have learned something more, gotten stronger. Like I literally can't go to bed at night unless I feel like I've fulfilled that day with something important. And I don't understand how average people don't do that. Like to me, it's like I feel like I've wasted the whole day if I don't get something accomplished, like something seriously accomplished, like writing a new manual, like helping a kid out that can't walk or like, you know, trying to do something that's impressive every day. And it's not to impress other people. It's to impress myself and to show myself that I still have what it takes to like be somebody to be worth. Like, I guess it's I mean, I'm hard on myself. I make myself worth my day. And I don't understand how normal people live. Like to me, it's just it blows my mind because I would be so unhappy when I lay down in bed if I was an average person that put in an average amount of shit every day that I don't think I could live with myself. And it's not that I'm an elitist. 
it's just it's hard it's hard to to listen to other people's excuses when they've never had your deck of cards they've had it they've had it better than you and they don't want to do anything with it yeah well it was it was a very kind of pertinent day today so my my granddad who passed away it was actually would have been his birthday today but it's also ve day victory in europe day it's a very proud day for how, for, how old was he? Uh, he would have been 108 he died at 99 and he got cancer oh, so shit. if he hadn't got cancer it wouldn't he, surprise so he me if he was like almost 100 yeah 90 94 yeah my grandmother's almost 103 she's still going strong so she's Dang, just, that's crazy <laughs> so i've got some good genes going on but that there was it was a great reminder though so how many you know basically millions if you count the entire planet died in world war ii and you know we ended up succeeding you know the men and women that fought that either lost their lives or gave service created this freedom so we're not speaking german right now we're not part of a you know horrendous um genetic modification regime and so there, yeah. there's another thing for which gratitude, perhaps, which perhaps we needed. <laughs> perhaps we needed. It. But but that's you know when everyone was banding together, that was you know that was some of the most proud times of American history, of, of British history, and how how soon we forget. Like nine eleven, everyone was holding firefighters on pedestal, you know, and then three or four years later, they're they're dropping from nine eleven related cancer, and there's no money anymore. You know, oh, I'm sorry, we can't afford it now. You know, so I think that. That reminding yourself of how lucky you are and the sacrifices of people that came before you, that you like, just like you said, you owe it to the world to do something with this gift of life. And 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 shame on you if you just freaking coast through life and don't do anything, you know, to improve your community. Yeah, that's how I am too. I feel like that's why I've been so um, so diligent about putting out more YouTube videos and putting out more manuals because I don't want to feel like I didn't give what I could. Now, if people don't listen to it, I can't change that. But at least I said I gave what I could to give back to everybody else and show them how to do things smarter, show them how to live healthier. And at the end of the day, if they don't want to listen to it, then that's not my fault. But at least I can say I tried. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's what I love about this. I mean, this, like I said, is a free library. Like I'm, I'm so fortunate that people like yourself come on and, and donate their time. And I put it on the internet and it's out for free, you know, so that, that you don't even have an excuse that there's people that listen all over planet earth to this and all they have to do is hit play and listen to Matt Wenning or, you know, whoever's on that particular episode and they can learn it. And I love, yeah. I love seeing that you and so many other people out there, obviously you've got, you know, to put a roof over your head and food in your stomach as well, but there's always this, this, you know, content that will get people down the rabbit hole and it's completely free. Yeah, exactly. Just people just have to listen to it, you know? Yeah. Well, I want to get to to the manual in a second, um, but there was one more area I want to just kind of get your perspective because obviously it's it's not something you immediately think of when you think of powerlifters. But what about your mobility philosophy with your first responders and athletes in general? Well, that's a tough one because I'm not a big mobility guy to speak of. If you talk, I mean, my name is not you know enhanced with mobility, but. I think mobility usually something that's tight usually means it's something that's weak. So I'm always looking as to why is something immobile versus trying to create mobility. So my I kind of follow along the lines of what Charles Poliquin thought of, which is mobility is garbage. Range of motion is king. So for me, I try to get people more mobile by getting them more active and then by fixing structural weak points, you know. Most people's back issues are because their hamstrings are tight. And the reason that their hamstrings are tight is because they're weak. 
if you get a strong hamstring, tends to loosen up and then it tends to fire the glute. It's a kind of a chain reaction. Um, so what I'm looking for is how do we fix this issue and get multiple birds with one stone? So in my opinion, mobility at its core is not insanely useful based on the fact that it doesn't build strength. And in classical terms, if it's just classic stretching, doesn't build neuromuscular control or motor pattern efficiencies or anything of that nature. So in my opinion, what I try to find is a way to do exercising that enhances mobility without mobility being the main focus. Yeah, and I and I agree 100%. I found that you know through self exploration. But uh, I I one of the things I do is foundation training. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but it kind of looks like yoga, but it's using the body weight whilst you know extending the the uh, the hamstrings and the glutes and firing them and and, and basically based off the hinge. But it, it works so yeah. well. And then you do that obviously along with deadlifting and, and, you know, all the other movements. But yeah, just stretching on its own. I did that before I hurt my back. It didn't help. <laughs> yeah, I hurt my back. So, but when I found this and realized that there were imbalances, that was the key. Like, you know, I was strong one side, but weak the other. So, you know, my pelvis was tilted and that was a precursor. But yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a, the most sensible philosophy. However, if we don't address that, then I think it's an absolute, you know, uh, injury waiting to happen oh by far but the key is is figure out why something's immobile and see if it's like you're saying like your hip strap alignment or you have maybe um you know some other type of an issue that's causing the mobility problem because sometimes doing mobility on top of a structural problem is like putting a band-aid on a bullet hole yeah yeah exactly now, we'll, well, speaking of the solutions then, so I know you have all the manuals. One of them was physical training for tactical populations. So for people listening, yeah. kind of, obviously you're not going to tell us the exact content. What kind of content is going to be in that so that people can you know, go, on, go online and actually start uh, following a program? Yeah, well, the manual was initially designed to uh, enhance special operations while I was working with um, some elite groups such as Ranger Regiment. And then what I found is that tactical meant a lot more than just these elite physical capable guys. So a lot of the workouts that I had in there were just way too gnarly for guys that had no base. Well, so that manual started to change and enhance itself over to being more applicable to police and fire departments because that's where my big contract started to come from. So what I started to do was I started to create a way or a bridge gap to go from complete beginner and have multiple a multiple week and multiple month program all the way to a SEAL Team Advanced Training Protocol, which we used to write for SEAL Team 3. So basically, it's the first manual I've ever seen that has went from beginner to elite. Um, the, prob the problem with most manuals is that they're going to select a certain class of person and then just expect you to bend that way. So this manual actually teaches you how to think, shows you if you're beginner, intermediate, or advanced, how to progress yourself, and also how to progress yourself in a safe fashion and not overdo one particular form of physical fitness, i.e., you know, in the military, it's funny because what we say, we have three different types of people. We got people that like to lift. We got people that like to run and we got people that don't like to do jack shit. So the trick is, is having a blend of the lifting and the running to where you're creating the optimal functional type training, i.e. maximal strengths there, conditioning is there, mobility is there you know, injury prevention is there and proper equipment usage and selection is there. But 
it's really a, a really tight manual of teaching people how to go from beginner to advanced, but it works for everybody. So if you're already a, say a SEAL team operator or a Delta force guy, you could pop right into that manual and there's a six, 12 week workout in there and it shows you how to program and how to think. Um, but the hard part is, is that manual. And it says right in the beginning, when you go to the programming is warning, it has a warning page and it says these workouts are designed to teach you to think not to copy, you know, because everybody's weaknesses are different. So the hard part is, is you find a lot of tactical guys, they might want to train hard, but they don't necessarily want to learn. So then they go to workouts that aren't necessarily applicable to them. And then they're massively overtrained and it doesn't actually function. So I would urge anybody in the tactical realm to read the entire manual and learn how to focus and use cognitive power in order to pick the right exercises. Yeah, I mean, that's something from talking to so many elite coaches now that seems to be a, one of the core problems is some of these programs that you see out there are going on the principle that all human beings are the same. And obviously, that's the, the huge, a huge mistake, I think, in movement practice and in nutrition. Huge, huge difference. Right. So then where can people find that? And then what other programs have you got out there as well? Man, it's, it's getting so vast now. I would have to think about it. But if you go on winningstrength.com, you know, my last name, strength.com with no spaces, you'll find all the products we have. But we have a manual out now that's a offshoot of the vertical diet that basically shows you how to sustain that diet with different seasonings and flavors and things that I've used to keep that diet steady for the last three years and make it sustainable for me. Um, adding in different kinds of, you know, um, products into the meat into the rice, how to flavor it to make it stick. What do you do with cheat meals, which Stan's not a big advocate of, but I just think it's not real usable for the average person if you don't have built-in days that they can go out and eat with friends. So I show how to kind of eat off a menu and how to select things that are a little smarter, how to, how to judge and have rules on cheat meals. So we have a book on that. We have minimal manuals, both in minimal time and minimal equipment. So some people have an unlimited budget and could build a $200,000 basement gym and other people have zero money and need to find the most optimal things they can. So we have two different types of minimal manuals. We have a 10 week workout that is for the Corona and like, you know, staying at home where we're quarantined, basically body weight stuff, but it is not easy. Uh, we designed that workout based off of um, a lot of the stuff I would do with uh, special forces guys and, or, um, Ranger regiment that didn't have a lot of equipment out in the field and had to stay super fit with mostly body weight movements. And trust me, there's some in there that are very difficult, but it's also usable for everyone. And then we have the powerlifting manual, which is probably the most extensive because it's mostly my background and my storyline, but um, shows how I went from linear periodization to conjugate, um, explains what I had to learn to go from a 400 to a 500 to a 600 pound bench press um, explained how I worked around injuries or pulls and nags. I'm not really known for injuries because I didn't have a whole lot, but you know, everybody has pulls and strains and how you work around those is either smart or stupid. So we put a lot of stuff in there for that. Uh, nutrition recovery is huge. You know, being super strong, you grow outside the gym and a lot of people don't realize that um, you don't grow when you tear down muscle. So learning how to eat and sleep, is when you're going to actually put on quality mass and actually even increase all forms of physical activity. 
Um, I'm trying to think of what else we have in there. We have a manual that's just based on bands and chains because I got tired of going on the internet and seeing people set things up correctly. So we have a manual up there that shows you how to set up the chains, how much weight you should use for the chains, the bands, what the color codes mean, how much they weigh, how to set them up correctly and how to use them. Um, and we also show the various amounts of specialty bars that eventually you're probably going to have to have in your repertoire in your training just to reduce mileage. So a lot of times safety bar and Buffalo bars and things of that nature are all put into the program for variation, but they're also put in for mileage reduction. So I find that squatting with a complete straight bar constantly, it starts to put a lot of wear and tear on my shoulders. So if I rotate different kinds of bars, it seems like I can squat more volume. And in the end of the day, that's the key is learning how to train with exceptional volume parameters without wear and tear, which are a double-edged sword. So you have to do that very, very smart. As you raise volume, you also have to raise cognitive ability and stimulus uh, rotation or variety, or what ends up happening is you, you run into burnout and overuse injuries. Yeah. So is, is that kind of what you, the last bit that you said kind of tying into when you talk about for longevity, when you're 20, train like you're 40? Yeah, it's just having a longer term plan for everything. That's one of the things that I think that means. The other thing that I think it means is, you know, if you're going to be your strongest, and my theory, my theory is you're probably at your strongest somewhere around 35 if you do everything real smart. You might be able to extend it or it might be a little earlier, but I would say on average between 35 to 37 is when you're going to be at peak. But that means you have to make it to 35 to 37 and not get beat up because if you're already got all these injuries and knee issues and back issues by the time you're 35, you're probably not going to make it to your top prime strength. Uh, conversely, the same or the same thing is if you're a fire guy and you train like a fucking idiot at 25 years old, you're not going to be able to sustain that by the time you're 50. So everything has to have equilibrium and balance and sustainability, you know, consistency beats intensity. Love it. Yeah. And that's so pertinent to, to us. And, and like I said, I think the, the misconception that I myself subscribed to, you know, was, was, uh, you know, just, just redlining everything. Like you have to kill yourself on, on the training ground. And now, especially as an older athlete, you know, I realize there's so much, um, value in recovery. And even to the point where so many men and women come off shift and then they go straight to their CrossFit gym, whatever it is, and, and do like an intense workout to quote unquote flush out the shift. And now talking to Jeff Nichols and some other people, you realize, well, that's the worst thing you could do. Like now you're adding stress to stress. So maybe that day walking around the lake is actually the best thing you should do. And then, and then do the intense workout the following day. Yeah, it's exactly right. And Jeff Nichols, you know, he's, he's been in special ops. I think he was a SEAL guy. Um, he learned the hard way. And like I said, you know, the reason that you find like SEAL team guys and Delta Force and special ops dudes, they train smarter because they have to, because if they don't, they're not going to be in the game very long. So you find that the higher level strength training programs are at the higher tier of, you know, tactical units because they want to stay there till they're in their mid thirties, you know, and if they don't train smart and they got all this mileage, they're not going to be able to. Yeah, Exactly. Right. Well, Matt, I want to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. Um, the, and I didn't, the thing I did these last time we, we spoke, they're kind of newer. So the first one is, is there a book, a book that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed or something completely different. Mm. 
Well, I mean, almost all of my knowledge is based off the first edition of Science and Practice of Strength Training is Atsiorski. It'll be the Greenback book. It's smaller looking, um, but it's completely translated from Soviet texts. Um, you'll see max effort work and why, dynamic work and why, repetition work, talks about hypertrophy zones and all kinds of stuff. But it's all Russian-based where they had more control over the subjects that they were studying. Um, but it's a difficult read. That's the problem is the books I would suggest to read to learn to train are harder to understand. They're not made for layman's people. They're made for people that have a background in it, so it can be confusing. I mean, even sometimes I open up these books and I learn something new every time, and I've had these books since like 97. So it's one of those things that they're more of a kind of a look up a couple pages here and there versus read front to back. Um, but science of practice of strength training would definitely be one of them. Another one is Science of Sports Training by Thomas Kurtz. Um, and what I like about that book is actually the front cover. And in some way, shape, or form, I don't remember the, the terms, but it says in the front that, you know, training is optimal when you find out how to get the best you can possibly be with the least amount of energy expenditure, which is completely opposite of what most people think about strength training, right? They're looking to go harder, harder, harder. This book is trying to find out the optimal amount to do so that you're getting better without running yourself into the ground. I would say that would start people off in the right direction by far. Was it Thomas Curtis that wrote Stretching Scientifically as well? It might be. I don't know. I don't a, read anything that has stretching. <laughs> there was a book I had back when I was it when I did martial arts, and he was between two chairs. It was kind of like how to get the Van Damme stretch kind of thing, but I, I want to say it was the same name. I might be wrong. Yeah, actually, I think you're right because I'm looking at it right now. Stretching Scientifically by Thomas Kurtz. Yep, that's him. There we go. Wow. I don't even know what happened to my copy. It went away somewhere. So but Look, if you go down there, Scientist Force Training. It's a red, it's got a red, like an orangish red front cover. And it's got a, um, I'm looking at it right now. I'm just trying to get the picture. It's got a stopwatch and a gold medal in the front of it. Brilliant. All yeah, right. listen to this, listen to this, listen to this um, quote. Training is efficient if the highest sports result is achieved with the least expense of time and energy. I mean, dude, if smarts isn't that, I don't know what is. Yeah, we'll put that into to evolutionary terms. We wouldn't be wanting, you know, to do twelve laps around the, the you know, the woods before we chase the deer. We just chase the deer, you know. So it makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, then um, the next question is: there a movie that you love? Well, it used to be. I, I used to. I like a South Park, so I used to watch Team America: World Police with the puppets. I used to think the movie is so hilarious. I mean, I could I could still watch it every day if I had to. Um, I'm trying to think of other movies. I love like, like, you know, like serial killer type stuff. So I love Silence of the Lambs. Um, I like, uh, oh man, I'm trying to think about it now. Um, I'm, I'm a big, I'm an eighties kid. So I love old eighties movies. I'll watch a ton of eighties movies. Like I just watched the whole back to the future series and it was absolutely terrible, but I remember <laughs> it being so good when I was younger, you know, I like old Arnold Schwarzenegger movies like Commando, Running Man, um, not a huge Stallone fan, but um, I like him. But I'm, I, I thought Rocky was kind of cool and Rambo, but some of the Rambos got a little out of control. But they, uh, Commando, I thought was super cool, and Running Man. I would say those two are my two favorite Arnold movies by far. And then, uh, oh, let me think about it for a second. Um, 
what other movies have I watched recently that are super good that are old school? Um, I love the first Terminator. I like old school vampire, 80s vampire movies. There's one called Fright Night that I think is super cool. Um, I like watching the old Freddy Kruegers, especially the first couple. But I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of all over the place on those. Brilliant. You mentioned uh, Team America. I would love to get those two on the podcast one day. I think their philosophy on life would be amazing. God, dude. If you, I, man, if you do, that would be so awesome. <laughs> we shall see. That's kind of a hard, you know, they really seem to be harder to, to find even on the internet. So maybe one day I'll meet oh, a mutual yeah. friend. All right. Yeah, that'd be nice. That would be amazing. What about a documentary? Any of those that you've seen that you, you liked? Well, Tiger King by far right now has just blown my mind. I mean, the, the, I can't imagine what the rest of the world thinks of America after watching that crazy shit. Um, yeah, that that was crazy. But I like watching like serial killer documentaries. So um, I've been watching that new Waco on Netflix. It's good uh, about David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Yeah, um, it was kind of weird how they spun it though. They spun it different than what the media said happened. They showed. The federal government firing on them first. It showed them just being basically gun dealers at like gun shows. They weren't building up a huge armory. They were just selling guns at gun shows and they had bought a decent amount, I guess, on a decent price. And it looked like it was a red flag to the government. But it seemed like it went down kind of weird based off of that documentary. Um, You know, they they were pretty apt about they were the aggressors and they were doing that. But this this particular uh, documentary kind of showed it the opposite way. Um, and then I watched the one on Ruby Ridge about the guy that was not really a white supremacist, but he was the first guy that was kind of up there. And I think it was in, uh, Idaho and they ended up shooting his, his whole family in his cabin and he ended up getting out without getting hurt himself and then sued the government for some unlawful shit and won like $3 million. But it was that was pretty crazy. So yeah, I'm I'm a bit. I think I would probably watch documentaries more than anything. I think real life shit's pretty wild. Yeah, well, it's amazing, kind of what's out there now. And obviously, like you said, Tiger King, that just face palm in the series that is. But the information that we're getting through some of these documentaries, obviously questioning the sources and if there's any ulterior motives. But I think you know that there's a there's a lot of value to to the storytelling that they're doing, and the documentary qualities are incredible now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I don't think that I, I think that that Tiger King documentary, as far as the production and the the shooting quality and the storyline was just impeccable. I mean, it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And it made me want to buy an EMT jacket in case anyone I know gets their arm bitten off by a tiger. God, I can't <laughs> believe that lady was back to work within like three or four days. Like, no way. Yes. She, that's you a that's know? a loyal employee right there. Yeah. But I mean, where else are those? Go, you know they're crazy. Yes, yeah, that was a, a unique group of men and women. All right, so the next question: Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, Scott Caulfield from the NSCA, or former NSCA, he's the head strength coach at I want to say Colorado State in uh, Colorado Springs would be a really good one because he's worked with some tactical people as well. Cause he's right there close to Fort Carson. Um, he could be a good, a good, uh, a good interview for sure. Um, I would say, 
Uh, I used to read a lot of Pavel's stuff. I don't know how accessible he is, but Pavel used to train a lot of, I think, Spetsnaz people over in Soviet Union, so he might be pretty interesting. Um, let's see, tactical. There's a guy that's the head strength coach of the Sydney SWAT team in Australia. Um, I went over there and spoke in 2012, and I'd have to look his name up on Facebook because I don't talk to him a ton. Uh, his name's Mick Sterlini. Yeah, Mick's been on the show. Oh, okay, perfect. Yeah, no, he came on. I met, I met him through uh, TSAC as well, same way I met you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he he's good. Um, trying to think anybody that would be way out there that – oh, man. Uh, Dr. Kramer at Ohio State, would, my old professor, would be pretty interesting to talk to about that. Um, he's he's going to be way over the head of most people as far as when he starts talking about – the endocrine system, but he's probably one of the smartest guys alive. I would say with exercise physiology, he's my old professor at ball state, but he runs the exercise and neuroscience program at Ohio state now. Oh, brilliant. Um, yeah, he might be a good one to get to talk to. Um, let's see. There's my old boss at, um, my old boss at Washington township that actually hired me, uh, chief Al Wu W O O. He would be a good guy to talk to because he could tell you more of the implementation as a uh, fire chief into a wellness program for a department. You know, so he could be a very good asset for people that are chiefs or trustees that are looking into maybe doing wellness programs and need to know how to initiate it because that can be a difficult thing. Yeah. He was pretty good at doing that. Yeah, because I mean, he, he said yes. So. He was, so. Yeah, he was my boss for probably nine years. So he was, yeah, he was good. Then he retired, but he still works out at the gym. Oh, does he? Yeah, he's 62 and still benches over 330. Yeah, I mean, he's thin. He only weighs maybe 205, 205 and benches 330 at 62 years old. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for all those suggestions. I think it's a great idea. Um, last question before we make sure we can find you online. What do you do to decompress when you're not writing programs and training tactical athletes? I'm a very big fan of dark, like dark places. My, my, I'm, I don't know if it's because I have blue eyes or I'm fair skinned, but I, I get tan for being fair skinned. But if I'm in too much sunlight, it actually wears me out really bad. So I, um, I usually have. One, my bedroom's super dark when I sleep, have it pretty cold, 65 degrees, um, and I keep it very, very dark. But even when I take naps, I try to keep the light way down. Um, and then I even change what type of movies I'll watch. So if I feel a little overtrained or s stressed from work or whatever, I try to put in stuff that's more comedy-based that just kind of makes me chill out. But I've noticed that my stress levels are very entwined with my nutrition, so if I have low sugar, high protein, high good fats, and high hydration and salt, my body tends to be able to withstand more stress um, and not take it in a negative fashion, I think, which is a huge issue for a lot of people. So by eating clean and taking, getting plenty of sleep and downtime, I'm, pr I'm pretty good about, about you know, de-stressing. Have you ever heard of a guy, Julian Pinot? Mm, no, I don't think so. So he's... he's the man behind strong fit and it also came from a kind of strong man background and a martial arts background but very very like deep thinker when it comes to movement and exercise and nutrition and uh i think he's a, he's spoken highly of stan's uh 
diet as well. But one of the things that he you know, tested and, 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 and self-experimented on was the effect of nutrition on the actual nervous system. And, you know, he was, he came to the conclusion that, you know, again, we're keeping fats the whole time. We're keeping obviously, um, yeah, micronutrients as well, but that he would do the carbs in the, the beginning of the day where it would kind of uh, stimulate this, the sympathetic nervous system. So you'd be ready for training. And then towards the end of the day, they would eliminate the carbs and just do fats and protein. And that would actually deregulate the nervous system and help them get into parasympathetic where they're able to absorb the protein. And, I, and it was an interesting way of looking at it. Like you just said, tying in nutrition and mental health. Yeah. I mean, that has definitely got some shit. And Charles Altman used to talk about that pretty extensively, but he said at you, ha- you can only reach that point once you can deserve your carbohydrates. So the problem is even if you only eat carbs in the morning or pre-workout, but your body is insulin insensitive, then the carbs don't do what they're supposed to do. And it actually is backwards of what we think, at least in my opinion. So like what happens is that if you, I'm not saying to go keto, but once you go super clean carbs and start to only have your carbs from particular sources, what you start to find is that your body actually reacts to carbohydrates correctly. And then you can play the timing game with them. But the problem is that if, if you're already, say, 30% body fat and you're already insulin resistant, you can't really utilize carbs correctly until that resistance comes down. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. It really does. You got you got to reset, <coughs> excuse me, reset all the receptors that are able to function the way that God intended to. Yeah, and usually what I've found with the fire department guys that'll listen to what I tell them is that usually takes about 21 to 30 days. Yeah. Now, what about um, training in the morning? I I, I had a shift because I, I came off shift. So, you know, my routine went to, I was in bed every day. It was amazing. I loved it. But um, I started waking up, having a cup of coffee, and then going and doing my work in, workout and then coming home and eating about 10 a.m. And I actually found I performed much better on an empty stomach than than fueling up. Now, bearing in mind, this is a 60-minute, you know, CrossFit-style workout, so I'm not doing hours and hours and hours. What is uh, what is your philosophy on morning workouts and whether you should eat before or not? That's actually a really good question and something I won't consider myself an expert on, but I will consider my expert on variability, meaning um, when I was comp- competing in powerlifting, what I found was is that I couldn't control when I squatted, bench pressed, or deadlifted. So what I did with my own training is I had two days in the morning and two days at night, and they were pretty severe. One of them was at eight o'clock in the morning, which is not crazy severe, but it would be earlier than any powerlifting meet. And then I had one session two days a week that was 5.30 or 6.30 p.m. That way I learned to train waking up and I learned to train before I went to bed. And what I found over doing that for 15 years is that when I went to competitions, it didn't matter what time the competition started or ended, I could I could be strong at any time in the day. I find that people that go, well, I train in the morning or I train at night because I feel better. If they're ever called out to have to do any kind of competition and they can't control the timing, then their performance suffers tremendously. So I was a huge proponent of having multiple training times to where I never got comfortable. I had to mentally be prepared to train at any time. Now that might be powerlifting specific, but it also sounds to me just in layman thought pattern is why wouldn't you do firemen that way too? Because they don't get to choose when the fire is. So if I can make them do some evening workouts and some morning workouts and some mid-afternoon workouts, they're used to getting ramped up at any time during the day. 
Now, the trick is I don't think it's eating before or after training. And I'm saying that in a general term. Obviously, it does matter. But I think that really nutrition matters the 24 hours before you trained, meaning it doesn't probably matter if you trained fasted, I, although I probably would not. Um, it matters if you ate clean the last 24 hours before you worked out and you ate properly, meaning every you know hours that you were awake, you probably had some sort of protein, fat, and good carbohydrate fuel every three to five hours. If that's the case and you had four to five meals yesterday, you could probably wake up and train on an empty stomach. It wouldn't be a big deal. Or you could eat and it wouldn't be a big deal. But I find that people that get in these regiments, it ends up being so strict that it starts to affect performance when they can't have that that rigidity of schedule. Yeah, that's a really good point. And mine, mine isn't rigid. Like there'll be some days where I'll do an afternoon workout based on, you know, what I've got going on in the morning. But, but yeah, I, mean, I think it's very pertinent for the first responders. You know, I think if you are constantly completely locked into that routine, then you're missing an opportunity for variability and, and durability. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that tangent. That was great right before we uh, we closed. Um, so let's just reiterate one more time. Where can people find the website and then where can they find you on social media as well? Yeah, sure. So um, my website is winningstrength.com with no spaces. I'm on Instagram at real Matt winning with no spaces. So it's just my name with real on the front. Um, I'm also I have an account on Twitter. We don't update it a ton. Um, I'm trying to think of the other outlets that we have. That's pretty much where most people get a hold of me. Um, also, the Ludus Magnus Gym has a page, the center the that we use, um, that, I, that I have. And, um, yeah, I mean, you can find everything there from equipment to manuals to private online coaching to um, pretty much everything. And we also do sessions at the gym. And we, we've actually, the last five, six years, really increased the amount of internships that we do so we have people come from all over the world for anywhere from six to 12 weeks and they come to the fire departments and learn what i do they do all this and that we obviously charge for it because it's you know it's a lot of work but um we let them see what it's like to live both in training and in coaching what it's like to be at ludus magnus full-time Brilliant. I love that. And there's, there's people that, excuse me, there'll be people listening now that are hoping to work with the tactical groups. And I think that's a great way of, of really learning because I think that's one of the downfalls of some of the quote unquote wellness people we have in our profession is they go off for two days, you know, get a certification and come back beating their chest that they're experts in, <laughs> in sports science now. Oh, yeah. I mean, most, most of my interns that have come, like, for instance, Colton, um, he just graduated from University of Kansas with his master's degree. So a lot of the people that come to me for internships are pretty serious about doing that. So for us, you know, to truly learn how we do things, I mean, it takes years, but we're pretty good at doing crash courses at the gym to give people a start in the education process. But, you know, the name of the gym and myself hold a lot of clout with professional strength coaches and if we have really good interns, it usually turns out to be graduate assistant, paid master's degrees and assistant coaching at both colleges and pro levels. So, Brilliant. Well, Matt, I want to say thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed I listened to the you know the first one we did and I, I really enjoyed listening to that again. It was so much information in that episode nine for everyone listening. But again, I mean, here we are now, hopefully about to leave this this period of isolation. And, and I think people need to really question 
their health and, and who they've been listening to and who they should be listening to. And I hope this is one of the episodes that people go to when they're they're looking for for the right answers. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time again. Not a problem, man. 